0: All right, take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. This morning we are looking at Philippians 1 verses 3 through 11. The title of the message this morning is a prayer for our church, but I want to focus just quickly on the title for the series The Joy of Partnership. Now, I touched on this just a little bit last week. Excuse me a second. Glasses and this earpiece mic. I'm not used to, so I got to get those those two things situated. Um, we touched on it a little bit this uh, last week. We talked about how uh, fellowship. Your translation may say fellowship a number of times, but what Paul is actually talking about is partnership. the The theme, one of the themes, maybe maybe not the only theme, and maybe not even the well I think the 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 loudest theme of Philippians is this joy of partnership he's He's writing to uh, the church in Philippi not to correct them like he did with Galatians and Corinthians, but just to encourage them, to exhort them, hey, y'all have done these things in the past, you've continued to do them, you are doing them now, let me encourage you to continue to do those things in the future for the same reasons that you've been doing them and despite what persecution may come. There was clearly some persecution from their uh, pagan Roman culture going on and Paul wants to encourage them through that. But he tells them to continue in the partnership, continue in the fellowship with joy. Joy, as I told you last week, and its uh, derivatives—joyous, joyful, uh, uh, joyously—is the most used word in Philippians. That's his his theme throughout, in all situations, to uh, to go to to respond with joy. But then the other probably half of the, the major theme is that partnership, joy and partnership. Now, as I said, fellowship, when Paul uses it, means partnership. What, what does that look like? Well, this week, um, Jace, uh, look, hey son, he's home watching, um, has been wanting adventure movies. He started with who Knows What was the first one. Indiana Jones was the first one. And he loved those. And he, then he wanted more treasure hunt movies. So National Treasure. He watched both of those a million times each. And then it was go to Netflix. And Daddy, look up. Mama, look up treasure movies. Look, and anything that had treasure to do with it, he wanted to watch it. Now, turns out some of those were just boring documentaries and he didn't care so much. He wanted treasure and adventure. So... I thought this week I've been wanting to watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy again anyway because I like to do that occasionally. That would be a great adventure series for him. And he has enjoyed most of it. There are some slow parts that he struggles to get through, but the battle scenes are are great. But the, the, the idea of fellowship as partnership is, I think, best displayed Uh, contemporarily in this photo of the Fellowship of the Ring. It's the first book or movie in the trilogy written by J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and the first book is The Fellowship of the Ring. And in that fellowship, you've got two humans, an elf, a dwarf, a wizard, and four hobbits. And I just lost, like, half of y'all that are listening because, like, what hobbits, elves, dwarves, Michael, please? No, don't focus on that. For one thing, they are incredibly different as far as who they are as people. Uh, dwarves were long-lived. They were about three-quarter height of a human, uh, but they could live, if I remember correctly from my readings, four, five, six hundred years in this world uh, hobbits had kind of a human lifespan generally, but they were called halflings. They were about half the height of a human. Uh, the guy on the right, if you're looking, is that that's that's your right also? Oh, yeah, okay. The guy on the right is just a normal human who would have lived 70, 80 years. Uh, this book is old. The movie's old. Spoiler alert: He dies. It's Sean Bean. That's the actor. You always know he's going to die if he's in a movie. It, just that's, that's the way that works for Sean Bean. So he dies, uh, elves are uh, immortal, they can be killed, but they don't just die uh, in Tolkien's world. Uh, Gandalf the wizard, he, they are above humans, they live a long, long time, probably don't die either, I don't know all the history there, they are uh, I don't know what their particular race is, it's just wizard, I think. And then the guy on the far left is called Dunedain, and he's human, but he lives a few hundred years. All right, my point in telling you all that is that is a mixed bag for this realm, for this world called Middle Earth. Whole bunch of different people. You have the strong warrior, you have uh, the, the elf who can see and shoot straight, and then you got the hobbits that just pretty much eat and sleep. I mean, that's all they do. They were very, and yeah, and smoke their pipe weed. Um, they... uh they're, some of them are heroes, some of them aren't, but they make this fellowship of the ring. But by fellowship, they don't mean ice cream socials. They don't mean game nights. This fellowship was a partnership, and, and, and as you move through the, the, the movie, they, like I said, Sean Bean, uh, Boromir in the movie, he dies. Uh, Very quickly in the first book, or or it seems quickly, toward the end of the first book, first movie, they get separated and now that fellowship of uh, nine is split up into into three different groups uh, because of uh, having to go different directions. But they had a common purpose for which they all suffered. And through the entire trilogy, they are working together, even though scattered, right? Sound familiar? Even though scattered, they're still working together for the same purpose of getting this one little ring thrown into a particular volcanic mountain so that evil can be stopped. I mean, that's that's the whole purpose of the movie. But their fellowship is a partnership. It's not just a get-together. It's not just a hangout. It's not just uh, to break bread together. It is a partnership for a particular purpose. We as a church are a fellowship, but we, if we take that word and water it down too much to mean ice cream socials and game nights and going out to eat together, we are missing the entire purpose of fellowship. Fellowship in the church is partnership in the gospel work. That is what Paul's going to talk about throughout Philippians. When he says, I'm thankful for your fellowship in some of your translations. In other of your translations, it will say, I'm thankful for your. Partnership, and even if it says fellowship, he's talking about your fellowship in doing the work of the gospel. So, fellowship was work. And it's not that ice cream socials and game nights are bad things, but they are secondary at best to the work of the church and the work of the gospel. Our fellowship as a church has a kingdom purpose and an evangelistic goal. That's why we fellowship. That's why we come together as a body so that we can go out with the gospel to the world. And that image there of the fellowship of the ring should kind of stick with us throughout this message and coming messages. And I may bring that picture back occasionally just to remind you of what fellowship means. It means partnership it means partner it means fe- it's fellowship even if one of us dies in the work it means fellowship even if we are separated for a time in order to fulfill the purpose in a uh in the way that is necessary so then we we that's kind of a preliminary thing just kind of get us thinking about p- partnership and fellowship a little bit and Paul then begins Philippians he he began his letter we talked about last week it's a a friendly letter uh, a friendly letter of exhortation and he begins by saying who wrote it and we talked about saints and slaves and this week we're looking at his his prayer in verses 3 through 11. There are two parts to this prayer that we're going to look at it's it's a beginning it begins with a prayer of thanksgiving and then it ends with a prayer of intercession. Read with me. Uh, chapter 1 of Philippians, verses 3 through 11. Paul writes, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. See, he gets right into that partnership stuff. Verse 6, I am sure of this, That he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart, and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul's writing this letter, and he begins with writing out the prayer that he so often prays for this particular church. Now, I know personally, I am thankful when people will tell me, I'm praying for you in this way. I'm praying for you in this area, over this need, over this situation. Uh, when we could gather and we had our men's prayer meetings on uh, the first Saturday morning of the month, uh, there's one gentleman, and there may have been more. I just I saw this one every week. I'm not going to name him because it might embarrass him. But he would come up. He, We would spend our time here in the sanctuary uh, kneeling or sitting in the pews and that at some point he would come up to the pulpit and he would pray for me and for my preaching and for my leadership and I knew he was doing that and it meant so much to me. It means a lot to hear I'm praying for you in this way and Paul knew that he liked to hear that so he writes this letter begins this letter to the people at Phil- to the church at Philippi saying hey this is how I'm praying for you. And I think we can take this passage and as we fellowship in the work of the gospel, as we partner in the work of the gospel, we pray for our church, and that's the title of this message today, a prayer for our church, that we will be a church of partnership for the gospel. We see First, that Paul prays a prayer of thanksgiving. There are really only two major sentences in this passage. There are a couple of there there are more than two sentences, but two main thoughts. He says in verse three, I give thanks. He says in verse nine, and I pray this. And those begin the two major sections of this passage. But it begins with this prayer of thanksgiving. And and how does he pray this prayer of thanksgiving? and What does it look like? Well, the, that, that first idea is, I give thanks. But in giving thanks, what does he do? Well, first of all, he prays a prayer of thanksgiving with joy in verse 4. He says in verse 3, I, I do this every time I remember you. Every time I think of you, I, I pray this. And verse 4, he prays with joy. Now, here's the truth about, folks... There's some people you think of, and when you get a remembrance of them, it ain't joy that you feel, is it? It's not the first thought that comes to mind, or maybe that's just me. But uh, I imagine there's some folks when that you mention, mm, that's not that doesn't inspire joy. We want to Marie Kondo that thing out of there because that does not spark joy in me. Well, Paul says for uh, him, the church at Philippi. Every remembrance leads to a prayer of thanksgiving. Can I get off my notes here for just a second and say, wouldn't it be great if every one of us sparked joy when somebody else thought of us? Wow. I'm sure I'm not one that sparks joy in everybody that thinks of me either. uh, But that's probably a lot of my fault. Maybe it's a lot of our fault that we don't. So, But for, for Paul, every time he thinks of the church at Philippi and prays for them, he prays with joy. Well, why does he pray with joy? I pray for, uh, I, I, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer, verse 5, because of the partnership In the gospel from the first day until now. Because of their partnership in the work. Because of their fellowship, partnership in the work for the gospel. Because they were a team of disparate, different people. No hobbits that I'm aware of. Not sure about any else. Think they were all humans. Yet if we had taken a picture of the church in Philippi. And we talked about that a little bit last week. We talked about it being Lydia, the probably wealthy, or fairly wealthy merchant woman, and her household, and then the jailer, and then the slave girl. I mean, you can't get much more disparate and different than that picture, and what they had added to that over the, what, 20 years, between him starting that church in Philippi and writing to them from his house arrest in Rome, but all of that time this group this strange looking how did this come together group had worked for the gospel for 20 years and Paul gave thanks with joy for their partnership in that work this is not this is not mere sentimentalism or emotionalism due to hanging out all the time boy I sure do miss y'all cuz I miss talking to you. I'm sure that was part of it. He missed those times of intimate fellowship and just hanging out. But what he remembered, what brought him the most joy as a believer, as the church planter of this church in Philippi, was the fact that every memory of them reminded him of how they had helped him in his ministry to share the gospel. And not just in Philippi, but they had sent Help to him. He had gotten some help even while he was in Rome. We learn later on. There, there are people question uh, how pastors, pastors' families can have friends in the church, and and to be honest, some uh, some pastors don't. Some some ministers say, "I'm not going to be friends with anybody in the church because if I am." then other people that I'm not friends with get jealous. So it's just easier to not have friends at all. So I'm going to be standoffish uh, from everyone, and my friends will be outside the church. Now, we decided long years ago that's not how we were going to be, but we don't go around picking people to be friends with. The the question has come up in various ways, how do you become friends with people as a pastor in the church? I will tell you our answer, my answer. The people that I am closest to in the church, the people that I fellowship with the most, are the ones I've done the most ministry with. Those are the ones that I consider my closest friends. Why? Because I hang out with them doing the work of the church, doing the work of the gospel. Now, that bleeds over often into just hanging out for fun. But especially as someone who came into the church brand new, didn't know anybody here three and a half, three and three-quarter years ago, I got to know people only because we did church work together primarily. I I was the new kid, so I wasn't the one inviting people over to my house to get to know them. I was very thankful if there was somebody that invited us in to get to know them. But primarily, I got to know people because we were doing work up here at the church. We were uh, working together, uh, going out and doing things. We were cleaning up. One of the first things I remember doing was helping clean up Frash's yard early on when we were here stuff like that. And over the past nearly four years now, I am closest to those people that I have done the most ministry work with. That's fellowship. That's how fellowship in the church goes. And that's what Paul is rejoicing over. He's not saying, I'm so glad that I got to know people that were just like me and and. I had everything in common with, so we became friends. It's, I have joy in my relationship with those people because we did the work of the gospel together. So Paul prays a prayer of thanksgiving for the church in Philippi with joy. He also prays a prayer of thanksgiving with certainty. Verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul prayed a, a prayer of thanksgiving that God was going to make those people who they were supposed to be. And he could pray that thanksgiving, God, I thank you that you are going to sanctify my co-laborers, you are going to perfect my co-laborers, because I know their faith and I know what you are going to do for and in and through and with people of faith in the future. Paul could give thanks with certainty that God would perfect his co laborers. He was confident. Now I'm going to stick with certainty because my next one's confidence. He was certain that regardless of the people's failures, Paul knew the church in Philippi had sinful people in it. You know how he knew? Because all people are sinful. That was easy. He he knew himself. He knew how sinful he was. Uh, Tom talked about the first eight chapters of Romans this morning, where Paul talks about his own sin, how worthless and vile, and I do what I don't want to do and don't do what I want to do. He knew who he was, and he knew that's who everybody else is, too, in the church. He was certain that regardless of those failures... Regardless of their sinfulness, regardless of their uh, pulling away and pulling back and repentance and getting back in the mix, he was certain that believers proved their salvation or rather, yeah, believers that proved their salvation by their work for the kingdom would be continually molded by God into a a perfect vessel. Let me say that again because I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. He was certain that regardless of failures, believers that proved their salvation by their work for the kingdom would be continually molded by God into a perfect vessel. I'm not saying that they were saved because their good works. I'm saying their good works proved their salvation. And as they worked, as they fellowshipped, as they partnered in the gospel ministry, God then molded them constantly, regularly, into perfect vessels. They were sanctified, right? These are words that we've used before. We're justified at salvation throughout our entire life. We are sanctified. We are made holy. And then upon our death, we are now no longer bound by sin and we are glorified. We experience what we can only see and experience in part right now god is sanctifying us and what he does is he sanctifies us as we as believers work and prove our salvation through this partnership in the gospel it is those believers who hold back who say yep Again, as Tom talked about this morning in Connect Group, who say, I pray to prayer, I'm good, but never grow in their faith, never contribute, never partner in the gospel ministry that don't go through the process of sanctification. And I believe our process of sanctification is incomplete if we think that God is only going to work on our hearts apart from our involvement in the ministry. That's not the way he does it. That's not what he called us to. He didn't say, believe, and then sit back, and I'll just kind of tinker with you as you go. He said, believe, and then go to the nations, and as we go to the nations, God corrects. As we minister to uh, each other, God corrects. As we share the gospel, God uh, moves. We, it, it's kind of a... Maybe an image would be an assembly line. When the assembly line stops, when the movement stops, that car or whatever's on the assembly line doesn't get any further in its progression. You you want to take it from a a, a, a barrel of parts to a car that rolls off the end of the assembly line. As a believer, we go from a new believer down to a perfected vessel for Christ when we are taken home and glorified. But what a lot of us want to do is we want to stop as a barrel of parts with a stamp that says Ford or Chevy or Toyota or whatever it is and think, no, I'm a whole bunch of car parts. I'm a car already. When in fact, God wants to take those parts and mold and make and move us down that assembly line of gospel ministry until we are perfected at the end. Don't take my analogy too far and say, well, now, Michael, that's not exactly how... Just go with me on the image there, right? God is going to perfect that. God is going to perfect us. And when we roll off the assembly line of life at our death, We come out and we are welcomed and hopefully we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. What's the good and faithful servant? The one that has moved down the assembly line in the work of the ministry or the one that has sat as a bucket of parts at the beginning at their point of justification and has never contributed, never been a part of, never worked in the gospel ministry. Paul was certain, though. Paul prayed with certainty in this prayer of thanksgiving that these people were moving down the assembly line, that these people were going to be completed, and he was certain not in the people. He was certain in God's power and his sovereignty. Right? I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until that day in Christ Jesus. God was going to do the work. We just had to really be faithful to stay on the line. Third way that Paul prayed this prayer of thanksgiving is with confidence. Michael's certainty and confidence are the same thing. I think there's a nuance there. But yeah, you're right. But I needed another word. Verse 7. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart, and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He was confident. He prayed with confidence because he was confident in their continued partnership. And I think maybe certainty and confidence are a little different. I can be certain about something, and I don't have any doubt. I can be confident, but maybe I still wonder just a little bit. Maybe there is some nuance to those words. I feel like there is, so uh, agree with me just on this one, one point. I am certain that what God is going to do, it'll be done. I'm confident That if you continue your work, then you're going to accomplish what you want to accomplish. What you need to accomplish. What you are supposed to accomplish. And Paul was confident in their continued partnership. And that's what he's saying. I have you in my heart. We, we have this relationship already. You are all partners with me in grace, in imprisonment, and in the defense and, the con- and confirmation of the gospel. These are the ways that you have already been with me. You have already shown yourselves faithful to me, he says. Therefore, I am confident that you are going to continue to do that. And he's especially, I mean, we do this, right, with folks a lot. We, we, we instill them with confidence Sure, you can do that. Yes, you can do that. I really hope they can do that. Yes! absolutely. I am confident that you can do it. I hope they don't mess this up. You can do this. Now, Paul was probably not so cynical as, as that little uh, soliloquy might have been, but he, we, we do that. We, we, we want to give people confidence. You can do this. And, and, and we know they can. Sometimes the question is, will they? But we know they can. We are confident. Paul is telling them, and he's warning them, you're going to face opposition. There will be persecution. But I'm confident that if you set your mind to it, actually what he's going to say a little later in Philippians is, have this mind that is in Christ also in you, if, if you set your mind not to the task, but if you set your mind to Christ, I'm confident you will be able to continue with me in the ministry of the gospel. You will continue in faithfulness to the call of Christ to share the gospel. He was certain that God would complete them. He was confident that if they set their mind on Christ, they would fulfill the call as well. So he prayed this prayer of thanksgiving with confidence. And then finally, in verse 8, he prayed this prayer of thanksgiving with love. Quite simply, he loved the church in Philippi. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. What he's telling them is he loves them, and he knows this isn't quite true that he can't quite do this, but he's saying, I love you almost as much as Jesus loves you. Basically what he's saying. He knows he does not have that kind of love. Maybe he's just saying, I love you because Jesus loves you. I love you in a way that I would not be able to, in my own flesh, but because of Christ who lives in me and Christ who lives, within, lives in you, I love you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And if we think about that, if we meditate that on that a little bit, we could probably think of some people that the only reason we love them is because Jesus loves them. And the only reason we even attempt to love them is because Jesus loves us. So we, regardless of whether it's with all affection, I love them, or I love them, we are still to love them. And Paul, though we see here, he loves them. And he knows, even when they disappointed him, and I'm sure they did, I'm sure he got word of so-and-so. Well, if you've read uh, all of Philippians like I asked you to this week, you You hear about uh, Euodia and Syntyche, There are problems in the church. There are some folks that are button heads. There are issues, and yet he loves them with the love of Christ. It was proven by his words and his actions. The, the time he spent the it, he uh, as we said last week, he probably went back to this church after the initial planting of the church in 42, 3-ish AD after the Macedonian call in Troas, he went back to this church two, maybe three times. He visited, visited them over the years, proving his love by his actions and then his words here in this letter as well. So because of the love he has for them, because of his relationship to them, and again, how did he, how was that love Um, cultivated by their ministry in the gospel with him, by their working together, so he gives thanks for them. So verses 3 through 8 was a prayer of thanksgiving. Verses 9 through 11 are a prayer of intercession. He is lifting up this church to the Lord. He says, and I pray this. So verse 8, I give thanks, which really was a prayer, right? That's why it's a prayer of thanksgiving. I give thanks to God, that's prayer. I pray this, I intercede this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is kind of a long sentence, Verses 9, 10, and 11, you have his main idea. In verse 9, I pray that your love will keep on growing. And then he describes the rest of that sentence, what that means. What does he mean that the love would keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment? Well, he's praying for a growing love. But it's crazy, or it appears crazy, it's odd, that he would describe a growing love as knowledge and discernment. That's not what we think of as love. If we pray for a growing love in our church, what we have in mind often is be friendlier to guests who come into our church. Get along with each other better here among our members. Uh, Be more, uh, for some people, it's, it's be more physically affectionate. Not right now, six feet away. But, you know, be smile more. We're, we're not loving as a church if, if we don't do those, I would dare say, sentimental and emotional things that we have defined as love but that the Bible doesn't. Those aren't, again, those aren't bad things. It's, we shouldn't be grouchy and grumpy and make guests feel unwelcome and with each other in church. Those aren't things we should do. But when Paul is praying that they would increase in love or pray for uh, them to keep on growing in love, he doesn't mention those things. He says, in knowledge and discernment. Knowledge and discernment are knowing what's right. That would be knowledge. And judging when you're being misled, when you're being told wrong. Judging the truth. Knowledge and discernment. Now, again, if we meditate, and y'all meditation on scripture is important. To sit and to think about now, what does Paul mean here? We could skim over, now, oh, keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, keep on growing in love. Your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. We say, Oh, okay, that's what I need to do. And we keep reading and and, and we go on to the next chapter, we go on to the next book and that's it, but we have to stop and think about it. Now, what, what would that look like if we were to grow in love in knowledge and every kind of discernment? Or if our love would grow in knowledge and discernment? Well, if we are knowing what's right, uh, and, and Paul then actually flips them. He says knowledge and discernment, but then he describes discernment and knowledge. Discernment would be verse 10, what he talks about there. So that you may approve the things that are superior. Verse 10. Approve the things that are superior. So if I'm going to grow in my discernment, if my love is going to grow in discernment, then it is loving for me to approve what's superior. To know what is the greatest, what is the best, what is the most important. Now, the question that should enter our minds is... What's most important for our church? Is the most important thing for us to be friendly to guests when they visit? That is important, but is that superior? Is that we don't want to be mean to them, but is that what's going to grow the kingdom? Well, if you're just friendly, people come to Jesus. No, if you share the gospel, people come to Jesus. People don't come to Jesus because you say, hey... Just It doesn't work that way. And so we need to approve what is superior. Our love, if we truly love people, we tell them the truth. We are always consistently thinking what's best for this person. And what's best for this person is always to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if we are, have a growing love in discernment, we are approving what's superior. We are testing the truth. We are judging what is right. But then he goes on, Paul does, approve the things that are superior. And then, now it, it's interesting here. This is where some Greek, uh, knowledge of Greek verbs is um, uh, enlightening. When Let's back up to verse 9 for just a second. When he says, I pray this, that your love will keep on going. Rather, keep on growing. Greek, and I'm going to talk about these a lot. And I actually started to put these on the board, and, uh, for the screen for you so you could see them. And then I thought, no, you're already sitting on your couches. You're close enough to go to sleep anyway. Uh, I don't want to finally push you over the snoozing edge with Greek moods. But I need to talk about them for just a second. Because when Paul says that you will keep on growing. It's in Greek, the subjunctive mood. The subjunctive mood in Greek is I hope it happens. But not hope like we're talking about, like we've talked about in the Bible with um, uh, confident expectation. It's subjunctive mood is what might be. Paul understands that Our growing love is only what might be. Now earlier when he said in verse 6, I'm sure that he who started a uh, a work in you will carry it on completion, that wasn't subjunctive. That wasn't what might be. That will carry is indicative. It is a fact. It is a fact that God will carry uh, to completion what he has started. But when it's our talking about our growing love, he says, "This what this is what might be. Why only might it be? Because we mightn't grow in love. We might not do the work necessary to keep our love growing. Because knowledge and discernment will often lead to things, decisions." understandings that we would have rather not had growing in love or our our love growing in knowledge and discernment might lead us to love people we would rather not love it might lead us to minister to people we would rather not minister to it might lead us to welcome people we would not rather not have in our church it might lead us to not say the things that we really want to say to people. It might lead us to back out of some conversations and some arguments that we shouldn't be in. It might lead us, who knows, to be, oh, what's the next? Maybe pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Approving what's superior, our love growing in knowledge and discernment, might actually lead to sanctification, and that means I can't do some things that I want to do. So Paul says, keeping uh, gr- uh, your love growing might happen. As a matter of fact, uh, verse 10, and may be pure and blameless. Well, they in the English translation, they just went ahead and put in the might. It's may. It's also in the subjunctive mood. That you may be pure and blameless. That you may get to the point in that um, assembly line, thank you, of of life. You may get to the point of purity and blamelessness. Now, we will someday because we're going to die and finally leave sin behind. But in this life, we are still to strive for that purity and that blamelessness and you may get there you might get there if you allow your your love to grow in knowledge and discernment then you may be uh, may gradually achieve purity and blamelessness but it will happen when in the day of Christ but i think that might happen that subjunctive mood that You may be pure and blameless. I think there's a hint, and I don't believe he had this hint of the people in Philippi, the church in Philippi. But there's this idea of, if we go back to the beginning, that if you are here and this is where you stay, are you really here at all? That's a philosophical existential question. I'm not talking about are we really here. I'm talking about have you ever believed to begin with. If you never moved down that assembly line, did you ever believe? Or, as Tom talked about this morning, did you merely pray a prayer and thought that cleared you up on everything? So Paul is saying, if you don't if you haven't moved, if you haven't joined in the work of the gospel, if you haven't joined the partnership of the church, if you do not enjoy that fellowship of the work of ministry, then you may not have been saved. So that you might not grow, uh, your love might not grow in knowledge and discernment, and you might not be pure and ba- blameless in the day of Christ. Because it was a lie back then. And then he describes again, or continues to describe, what pure and blameless looks like. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That filled there is passive. Now if you remember your your English, it's something that's done to you. Not something you do. You are passive in the situation. So that you are being filled with the fruit of righteousness. As you continue, as your love grows and knowledge and every kind of discernment, you are regularly filled. Do you still see the assembly line? Do you see Christ working on you as you move down the line, continuing to fill you with the fruit of all righteousness it, the assembly line car it 's a bell and whistle here it's Aah! you can unlock your doors and and uh the hatch opens and it 's an air conditioner and it's a it 's bluetooth and well, but in, in christianity it's it is uh what Paul talks about in galatians five twenty two and twenty three it 's love and joy and Peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self control. And He is constantly adding to you as you move down that assembly line. And that is what we are shooting for, not for ourselves, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the assembly line, but to the glory and praise of of God look at me how good I am no look at God and how good he is that he would save a wretch like me and continue in all of my failures in all of my sinfulness in all of my hopping off the assembly line to go do what I want okay I gotta get back on there all of that he continues to work on us to his glory it's about him and how good he is not about us And that's Paul's prayer. I pray, giving thanks for your partnership, praying that you will grow in love, but in all things, in everything that you do, in every step of life, that you would bring glory to God. So what should I do? Right? Now this is not a, this would be the more of a tree of life, art tatum sort of, Passage this week. It's foundational. It, 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 I'm not going to give you five steps to whatever. Uh, I, I'm going to condense what do you want, what you should you do? What should you do? Pray for your church. Pray for your church. Pray for your church. What would that look like? Pray for your church with joy for our work together, with certainty that God will make us the church we should be because that's up to God, not us, but with confidence in the mission and that we will work on the mission. Working on it is up to us. It is a certainty that God can do it and will complete us. But we need to have confidence in a church, confidence in our leadership that we will achieve the mission and we should pray for our church with love for each other. So with joy, with certainty, with confidence, and with love, for a growing love that continues to sanctify us as individuals and as a church. That's what you should do today. Pray for your church. Pray for your church. Pray for your church. And there may be some of you who are watching that, that we are not your church family. And maybe your church doesn't have online... Uh, services, or uh, maybe they upload theirs at different times, so you're just joining us. Whatever church is your church, pray for that church. But maybe what you need to do today is join the church. And that might be you, you need to join First Baptist Sulphur, but that's not really what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about joining the church, joining the faith, being a part of the universal church by faith in Jesus Christ understanding some things about who God is and who Jesus is, that, that God's design was perfect, God's plan was perfect, and it is sin that messes up his design. There's, that is sin that messes up his plan. We can go back to the garden, and we find his design, and we find sin entering that situation and messing it up and leading to brokenness, a life that struggles, a life that hurts, a life that attempts to make the changes that are necessary but can't because brokenness just leads to brokenness. We often say uh, hurt people hurt people. Well, broken people break people. Broken lives break lives. Broken things break other things. And the only fix for that gospel, um, rather the only fix for that brokenness is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That if we repent of our sins and believe in Jesus Christ, if we have the confidence that God can carry to completion what he starts in us, and what he's talking about is our salvation, if he starts our salvation, he will complete our salvation But we've got to get to the point where we start our salvation, and that is belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he uh, was perfect, that he died on the cross taking our sin and our punishment for that sin and, and taking that from us so that we no longer have to carry that nor do we suffer the repercussions of that. He was buried, very dead, buried Three days later, he rises from the grave to prove he has power over sin and over death. He has power over what causes death and power over death itself, the the punishment for that sin. And if we will believe in him, place our faith in his work and not in our works, we will be saved And when we do that, we will begin to recover and pursue God's design. And part of that design is being a part of a local body of believers, a church family, like First Baptist Sulphur. And then part of that pursuing and recovering is praying for our church and our love continuing to grow and knowledge and everything. See, it, see, it just fits. It's almost like... God planned it. I'd go ahead and say he did. It's just like he planned it. And that's the way, that's how we should respond today. That's what you should do. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you work on us regularly. We are on that assembly line and you are constantly adding those fruits of righteousness. And I pray that Where it depends on us, we would be faithful. And where it depends on you, we would have faith. And God, we would see you work in our church, through our church, and in our community and around the world. God, we pray that you would make us a church that grows in, uh, that our, whose love grows in knowledge and discernment, and that we would love you above all, and that our actions would speak to that. God, we pray for this time of decision and worship, that you would speak to each one of us, and lead us all to make some decision for you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, Maybe you want to accept Christ this morning. Maybe you want to be baptized, join our church. You need to lead a life of holiness and recommit, return. You have some decision to make this morning. You, you can feel free, please, to comment there on the, the live stream, either YouTube, Facebook. You can message us on Facebook if that's what you would like to do. Send us an email. We've got all sorts of contact information on there. But we would love to rejoice with you. As you share that decision, we're going to take about five more minutes, we're just going to worship and allow God to work on each of us as we meditate on what he has said to us this morning from his word.